and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? And what research software led us to where we are today? These are the questions of the age and also this podcast. Very excited to talk to our guest today. Before we introduce him, I want to also talk about the other voices on this podcast so you're not shocked while you're driving. I am, of course, Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. And it's great to be here in Vermont, where it is too hot. Ben Nichols is joining us from Britain, where it is a balmy 40 degrees. That's really, really lovely. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm good. We're actually back down to 25 in the office. So yeah, I'm fine. And I'm hoping that I am not shocking anyone who is driving. I never really considered that as an opportunity, but maybe later. Yes, 25 below freezing. That is wonderful in the land of Celsius. We also have Amanda Kasari. Amanda, how are you? I'm doing well today. How are you, Richard? Excellent. And our guest today is Daniel S. Katz. Daniel is a longtime academic and pretty active person in the field of software sustainability. However, you may not have heard of him if you listen to this podcast because his focus has been largely on research software as opposed to, say, corporate software or industrial software or open source as a thing, open, open, open. Daniel has many long acronyms attached to his name. I'm going to try to just give a brief summary. So he's a chief scientist at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications. That's the NCSA. He's a research associate professor in computer science, electrical and computer engineering and the School of Information Sciences, iSchool, at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I think I got that right, but I'm not sure. He's also a Better Scientific Software BSSW fellow. His interest is generally cyber infrastructure, advanced cyber infrastructure, solving problems at scale. But he's also interested in policy issues, in citation and credit mechanisms. And he's a senior member at IEEE and ACM and on the board of governors for IEEE Computer Society. Done a ton of stuff. So, yeah, Ben is waving himself, not from the heat. Let me tell you, I first met Dan at I believe the Workshop for Sustainable Software Practices in Science, WSSSP, W-S-S-S-P-E, which I believe was in New Orleans back in 2013. I'm not sure how much we talked at that time, but it's been interesting to follow his work along. So he is one of the founding editors and the current associate editor chief of JOS, the Journal of Open Source Software. The other editor for that, and I believe also one of the founding members, was Arfan Smith, who is a fantastic person who... I believe we've had on this podcast. If not, we should have. I finally got to meet Arfin a couple of months ago for the first time. And it was really weird because I walked into the cafe and I knew who he was. And then I sat down and we realized we haven't met in person, even though we've worked together for 10 years. So that was really funny. I'm sorry. This is a very long intro. I just want to point out all the things which are really awesome because this context is important. We've mainly invited Dan on today to talk about Risa, which I've just edited out in a mispronunciation of that, which is R-E-S-A. And it's the Research Software Alliance. So we are very excited about that. Dan, I'm sorry to have to give all of that context and say all those things for so long and then even to make you wait more while I say this innocuous sentence. But how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you very much. It's really exciting to be here. Yeah, I feel like we've talked the one time, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago. And then I keep seeing your name and keep seeing stuff that you're doing and stuff going on in this area and always feel like in my little academic research software side of this, I always wonder kind of how that relates to the bigger piece and how we can make better connections into the bigger world of sustainable software. 
It's a really good question. There are overlaps. There are people like Leia Silen at NumFocus, right? NumFocus is a foundation which has a lot of really awesome projects that are all scientific software. There's also people like Karthik Ram, who I know you've worked with and I've worked with as well, who are very exciting and have made amazing work over the years and also showed up at Sustain in 2020 and I believe before, who continue to sort of bridge the gap between academics and industry. You may know a bit more about that, though, but I think one question I have to start is, could you talk a bit about what the Research Software Alliance is? Because I think that'll inform this conversation a bit more. I guess the the easiest way to to talk about this is that in terms of research software and in particular research software sustainability, there are a lot of different organizations that are working in different parts of the space. We have in the UK, there's the Software Sustainability Institute that's been going for about 12 years and has been really leading a lot of this. In the US, we're just starting something called ERSI, which is the US Research Software Sustainability Institute, kind of modeled after the UK. There's a similar activity starting in Australia. There's been an activity being talked about in the Netherlands that's similar. And then we have all these different research software engineering associations that have started nationally and multinationally and continental scale in some case. And then we also have just organizations that build research software like um, NCSA where I work, the Netherlands East Science Center, lots of different universities that have research software engineers. And so all of these different groups were all thinking about How do we make research software more sustainable? Which I guess similarly to sustainability in a software sense in general, it's how do we actually make sure that the software that we build is going to be around for some period of time and that the people that need to do the work to actually port it to new platforms, to find bugs, to worry about issues about underlying libraries that have been changed, actually are are able to do that work. And so that leads into questions related to funding and support for people fairly often and career paths for people and credit for people. And so then in order to do those things, we need kind of communities to come together and make changes. We need funders in academia to make changes, to provide more funding, to think about maintenance when they think about funding initial software that realize that they're actually also going to have to be on the hook for maintenance in the future if they don't want their investment just to end after the project that they fund ends. And so we were thinking that collectively, maybe we could work together and try to raise the profile of research software to say that it really is an important thing within research and to raise some of these issues. And so research, the Research Software Alliance of RISA really is intended to be this place where these different organizations get together and collectively work to raise the profile of research software and to work on issues around it. RISA also has to some extent an individual membership idea. We're still in the process really of figuring out exactly what membership means, but the idea of individual members would be that people can come together as well under a research umbrella and the things that we call task forces. And so we've had a few task forces at this point, probably the most successful is the one that really just finished up. It was defining fair principles for research software, where fair is findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. It's a set of principles that had been originally defined in a general way, but with a focus on data. And then we realized those principles needed to be customized for software. And so under the auspices of RISA, the Research Data Alliance as well, RDA, and then finally Force 11, which is a group that works in scholarly publishing and communication. We jointly formed this group with nine co-leads and about 500 different people that interacted in a variety of different events to define this set of principles to publicize it. Daniel, so there are a lot of different communities. You just mentioned some of them, which is great. I want to know, to start, 
What's the difference between RISA and Ursi? Yeah, so Ursi is one of the organizations that's really a part of RISA, a member of RISA, ideally, although Ursi is just starting, so there's not a formal relationship yet. But again, the idea is that Ursi is the U.S. Research Software Sustainability Institute. It's an activity that we had some initial funding from the National Science Foundation, NSF, in 2018 to do some planning for what this kind of an organization would be and to start building community. And we did a lot of planning. We had a bunch of different workshops. We had a large survey. We had some interesting results. We should put that into the notes as well. And based on that, we came up with an idea of what we wanted to do. And then we were trying to figure out how do we actually get funding to do that. And we've been continuing to talk with NSF about potentially funding some of that. But we decided that in the meantime, we would try to look at other funders and figure out how to get started. And what we ended up being successful at at this point was working through the Sloan Foundation. And so the Sloan Foundation, about two weeks ago, announced three awards for Mercy. One is to me to do some work around software policy, research software policy specifically. One is to Karthik Krami, who you mentioned, to actually start building an RC community, to hire a community manager, to create an organization in which different projects can come in and different people can work together. And the other is to Kyle Niemeyer at Oregon State to begin working on some training related to research software, particularly in academia. So all these together are what we have right now for ERSI and well, we're just starting up. And so then ERSI, again, is one of the, I don't know, many different organizations that is interested in influencing research software, specifically ERSI in the U.S. And RISA is interested in this in a more global sense. So all these different organizations that are either national, international, or project-based to come together to influence the larger community, which really is global. Really like that. So I'm really interested in looking at the funding aspect for this. It seems like there's a few communities and there has been over the years. The Workshop for Software Sustainability Practices in Science, like WISPI, IJC, I think did some interesting stuff in this space. There's a few others. SSI, of course, has been around forever. Software Sustainability Institute with Neil Chua Hong. Sorry if I mispronounced your name, Neil. One of the things I'm curious about is Sloan funds so much of this work. And a lot of that money comes basically through this one guy named Josh Green, who is really interested in how academics talk to each other and how do we make it easier for science to advance? Like, how do we enable collaboration that's effective and how do we do this work? So through Sloan, we've also had money given to say Oswald Plus Plus, which is another organization which... I ran for a few years and I'm still involved with and will probably restart in the fall for academics based on getting OSPOs at universities so we can better support academics through the open source program office idea. Another really interesting grant coming out of Sloan has been given to open at RIT. There's a conference with Stephen Jacobs, who we've had in this podcast a few times, who's a to-do group member as well as a OSPO++ member. And there's a conference in Rochester based upon like how do we work in academia better? And so it's really interesting to see how that funding has played out. What I'm curious about is why is funding necessary for all of these projects? What's stopping, say, research software people just getting together and doing this work on the side, just like a lot of us already do in industry? And I know this may be a devil's advocate question. I want to hear your answer to it. And how do we diversify our funding to make sure that it's not just Sloan that does this? So those are all good questions and probably complicated answers, but let me try to make some sense of this, at least to, to explain kind of license. But 
So one thing that didn't come up in that intro was that at the time that I was doing that WISPI activity, running that WISPI meeting that you mentioned in New Orleans, I was working for the National Science Foundation at that point. And I was running a program called SI2. It was software infrastructure for sustained innovation. And I'm handed at that point about 15 to $20 million per year of funding that I was responsible for that I could give to particular projects, particular research software development projects. And I was able to get another maybe 10 million a year from other people in NSF working in other areas, chemistry director at material science division, life sciences, things like that to help support the software. And I realized that that $30 million a year was really not anywhere near enough to actually support all of the software that was needed. And so that started making me think about what are the other things that we can do besides supporting software directly? How do we create an ecosystem in which people in academia work on open source software as part of their job? They get credit for it as part of their job. Their university supports them for it. They recognize it. They promote them based on how many people are using their software and what impact it's having, things like that. And so that was kind of what actually led me to start Wispy. I think that's actually kind of similar to things that Josh was doing and that others are doing. So I feel like in terms of federal agencies in particular and philanthropic organizations as well, philanthropic funders, there is a reasonable amount of funding that's being given out for individual projects. NSF has been doing this for in an organized way in terms of open source and sustainable software for at least 12 to 15 years. NIH, National Institutes of Health, has been doing it probably for 20, maybe longer. Department of Energy has been doing it in some sense since the 1950s or 60s. But it's always been individual projects, and it's usually been focused on novel new software and not maintaining existing software. So that's kind of one side. Building that recognition that that's not enough is one of the challenges. That's not enough to fund new software, and it's not enough just to fund individual software projects. Josh has been really great in terms of recognizing that and putting money from the Sloan Foundation into the ecosystem and into these bigger questions. And I think part of that is because from his point of view at Sloan, right, Sloan is an important, a really important funder in this space, but it's a relatively small funder compared to the federal government. And so I think every funder has to think about what's the place that I can have an impact given the resources I have. And I think Josh has really done a good job of thinking about impacting the ecosystem specifically by looking at these larger questions around software as opposed to trying to put, again, what's in his case, a small amount of funding compared to NSF or NIH into individual projects. There are other funders that have also thought about this. I think like Chad Zuckerberg is one that has been kind of working in this space, although in their essential open source software program, they've been thinking more about individual projects but in particular focusing on the maintenance as opposed to the novel new development. And so that's kind of a, an, an interesting point that somebody's coming in where there wasn't anybody else and they're making impact by really raising the importance of that. So I think overall, we have these different funders that are all playing different roles. And again, the question is, how do we bring these together so that we do all of these things from all funders in a coordinated way? And so that's another place that Risa is actually trying to act. So one of the things that Risa is doing is that it has started up over the last six months, maybe eight months, something called the Funders Forum. And again, I'll bring Josh back up because... Sorry, Josh. Well, Josh actually put in the original funding to support this Funders Forum because, again, he saw the importance of bringing these things together. But what Risa is doing is we have something like 25 different funding organizations globally that come together once a month and talk about issues that they can work on together. 
whether that's what's going on with fair for research software and how do they create policies that encourage their grantees to make their software fair to how do they work together to fund let's say software that's been built in multiple countries where each country can only the people in each country can only get funding from their own national organization so how do the funders coordinate to make projects that happen in more than one country Two issues about like if a funder is going to be funding new software, what kind of review criteria should they be using to make decisions? There's a lot of these different questions that are being asked and discussed that are intended to try to coordinate decisions, coordinate the ecosystem, coordinate funder activity. I don't think we have answers. We're not at the right place yet, but we're moving in a good direction, I think. That sounds really interesting. And it's quite a surprise to hear that within a more academic kind of research context that these conversations are happening because Typically, we're talking about supporting open source software within a more kind of commercial environment where you've got kind of Milton Friedman's theory of the firm and extractive kind of processes from shareholders that that are in action. And universities are more the kind of institutions that often make bets. They're often investing in projects and programs where there is a sense of unknown and that unknown is kind of embraced and pushed forward. So... It feels like from what you've said that within that context, this is more about coordination than it is necessarily about some of that value judgment and that exchange of value. Is that a fair reflection? Do you think that the conversation within academia and within research institutions is more mature and developed or more trustful compared to what's happening in commercial industry right now? There's two different things maybe that are worth bringing up about that. And I'm not sure that there's a single answer by any means. So one of them is that science and academia and scholarship for a long time has had this model of openness and collaboration in terms of results and to some extent in terms of methods. And both of these things have been increasing over the last, I don't know, some number of years. The sharing of results originally was through letters from one scientist to another, and then it moved to journals at some point. And then the journals have become digital, which makes it easier to share. And then the methods in some, kind of say, in some senses are implemented in software and the results are seen as data. And those also are digital and are easy to share. And so there's kind of, I think, a, a long history with an academia of wanting to share these things from individuals. I mean, of course, there also are individuals who don't want to share things and want to kind of own their own little piece and not tell people what they're doing, but only share the results and not the methods. But that's gradually falling out of favor and are, are trying to push against that, even if it's not necessarily falling out of favor. So I think that it's one side of things. The other side is that we think about software in general and we think about like how software is developed in academia. I think it comes up in in a couple of different ways. Um, One way is that it happens just naturally as part of the research process. Somebody's doing some research and they need to build some software in order to investigate a question. And that software might be kind of general purpose. It might be very specific. It could be a library that they're going to use multiple times. It could be a script that they're just using once in order to do some very specific thing. Some people in academia also think about libraries and infrastructure more generally in the same way that astronomers come together to build telescopes. People in higher energy physics come together to build accelerators. People in some areas of software and some areas of research in like in math, for example, build linear algebra libraries or other libraries that are not for them, but they think are going to be the infrastructure that will support their communities. 
So we have these kind of two different kinds of software. That's this infrastructure software that's built intentionally to support communities, to support other people. And then this more research focused software that somebody builds for themselves. And when people build it for themselves, again, there's some pressure to share it now coming from funders, coming from tribals, coming from others in order to make the results that they're defining based on that software more transparent, more reproducible. But some of those people also feel like this thing that I built actually probably could be used by other people. And so maybe I should actually be sharing it with them. And maybe that would lead to collaborations with other people who are interested in working with me based on these ideas. And so I think there's kind of these questions that come up about for somebody that's built software from themselves, why would they share it with other people? And why wouldn't they share with other people? And I think the answers are coming today more on that they would share with people. And so that's partly where funders are creating incentives. Funders ideally are funding some software to be developed for that purpose initially. And we're trying to work with the, the overall community, both in terms of things like citation to give people an incentive to share, in terms of reproducibility, maybe to give people what kind of a, a cultural expectation that they need to share for in order for their results to be trusted. Maybe the government also and funders in that sense are coming in and saying that you need to do this in order for us to believe your results, in order for us to fund your project. So I feel like there's a lot of different mechanisms that are coming up that are promoting software sharing at this point in academia. And, and as well as the fact that it just actually, to a large extent, matches the, the original goal of academia, which is to produce knowledge and for humanity. Dan, thanks for giving that context around how academia has changed over the years and how sharing is crucially important to it. We've talked a lot about funding and talked a lot about how people are working in collaborations. One of the things I'm curious about in terms of research software, which I'm not sure has been totally answered yet, is why research software is fundamentally different from corporate software from the maker perspective and how like Risa is working to address the needs that research software engineers have. You've already mentioned metrics. You've mentioned the fact that they can't get jobs, but I'm talking about things like sustainability. What's different about research software in the long term that it has different requirements or needs for how to keep it going or how to make sure that the communities who work on it don't fall prey to say high attrition due to moving to other universities. Can you talk a bit about that? Just to try to answer your question directly, I think there's a bunch of questions that we really don't know the answer to at this point. And one of them is, how is research software different than other software from the point of view of the people who develop it, from the point of view of how it's created and how it's maintained, what practices are best for it, how the software engineering applied to it versus the software engineering that's been studied and, and built in a larger context. I think these are all questions for which we don't really completely know the answer, but I guess that a few things are that research software is traditionally developed within academia or within national labs and to some extent in industry as well. The people that are building it are generally not software engineers. They generally don't have formal training in software. They're faculty members, they're graduate students, they're postdocs. So I think that's kind of one of the differences is that they're not necessarily setting out to build software. They're building software along the way in many cases. And I think that that's somewhat different than industry. I feel like in industry, and maybe this is kind of the, the grass is greener view, that things are more intentional and that if somebody's building software, their management knows they're building it and that there's some idea that they actually have the training in the background to do it, or if not, they get some funding to go off and get the training, which definitely does not happen in academia today. This is part of what we're trying to address with Software Sustainability Institutes with the idea of research software engineering career paths, but it doesn't happen by default. 
The other things are things partly related to funding that we've talked about before. Just to give an example, I work on a project called Parcel, P-A-R-S-L, that is parallel scripting library in Python that lets you define tasks and then execute those tasks asynchronously and on different resources in a distributed way on high-performance computing resources, on cloud resources, on edge devices, on, on other things. This project has come out of a long stream of academic work. It's been probably 15 to 20 years of different projects. Each of those projects has been funded separately. When the funding for one of those projects ends, we, the developers have a kind of a question like, how could we maintain the software? Should we maintain the software? Are other people using it? Or should we just take the lessons that we learned from that software and write a new grant proposal to build some new software? Because that's the thing actually that's going to be more appealing to a funding agency, at least today, even though it's probably less useful in the long run for the community. So I feel like that's actually one of the big differences as well. And then the last difference is the fact, I think, that a lot of the software is built by graduate students, particularly PhD students, and those students leave. And so then there's a question about like, how does that software get maintained? Where is the institutional memory? I know when I've talked quite a while ago, I worked with a faculty member and the faculty member was limiting the software engineering techniques and the language and the way the software could be built by his students because he felt like it had to be something where he really understood it well enough to maintain it. Like he didn't have the time to learn new languages and new techniques. And so that was kind of one of the issues as well. When students would come in and they would want to do something new, he would have to say yes or no based on if he understood it well enough because those students were going to leave and then in the software by itself without a person that was maintaining it wasn't enough of an artifact to be maintainable or sustainable. Yeah, Daniel, I love bringing up the idea of like the long-term sustainability and maintainability of software as a part, a necessary part of like long-term research labs. And I'm really curious as someone who crosses between engineering and science, especially in the last few years, I love the Journal of Open Source Software. I've been a big fan of it since it came out, since I first discovered it, because I feel like it really helps to fill this acknowledged gap that we recognize and advance in academia and research through publishing. But I'm really curious as to like, do you think yet that software is viewed as a first-class research project online with a published paper? And if not, what are the other barriers toward and what things need to change in academia and industry and I say like industry because of like research that would enable more for software to be recognized as a first-class research product. So those are the questions, I guess, I mean, just because you mentioned JOS specifically, I just uh, I kind of want to mention this little story that when we were starting JOS, we did it with this idea that it was going to be lightweight and it was going to be this easy way of people getting credit for their software. And I think it's been reasonably successful and it still is fairly lightweight and it does give people credit for their software. But we also thought kind of going to your real question, that JOS was a temporary thing, that we would do this for five years, 10 years, and then it would go away because we wouldn't need this kind of placeholder paper and that, that would stand in for the software, but people would just get credit for their software directly. And so that's always been our goal. I will say that one thing that's turned out from JOS that's been really interesting is that it's turned into as much of a community as it has been a mechanism for actually publishing. And so the review criteria that we use for JOS, I think, have influenced the field of how people develop software and how people think software is good enough. I'll say that our review criteria came from our open size review criteria originally, so they're not something that came up with from scratch. But I do feel like as our open side has used those criteria to change practices within R and science, 
JAWS has used its review criteria to change practices within open source and science fairly generally. And our review criteria then also get used in other activities. An example is there's a project called SIG, which is a cyber infrastructure for geodynamics. And they have also been talking with us about what are review criteria that we should be using. Uh, they have their own, we have our own, we're talking about what's similar, what's different, how do we converge into something that maybe is a kind of science-wide review criteria. And the other piece that goes along with this as well is that our criteria have changed over time. So we used to be much weaker in terms of our expectation of testing, for example, and also packaging. And so we've gotten kind of stronger over time in those. And so I think, again, kind of our policies have changed, but I think the community also has changed. And these kind of go together and it's hard to say which is the cause and which is the effect. Okay, so that's the one side that I think has been interesting with JAWS. But then the answer is like, so will JAWS ever go away? I hope the answer is no because of the reviewing part and because of the community part. I hope the answer would be yes because of the first class recognition of software. But I don't know. I think we're at a point where if you ask people in academia what they're judged on, at least in the scientific area, in the STEM area, they will probably say it's either papers or it's grants. They won't say data yet, even though data has been pushed, I would say, much more strongly than software for 10 or 15 years. And I don't think they'll say software in general, although there are clear examples of people that have gotten tenure based on software that have happened, that people have gotten jobs based on their software. They're still the outliers, though, as opposed to the norm. And I guess I would say where we are now is that papers are first class, data is a step below them, software is a step below data at this point. And this is part of what Risa is trying to push through funders, through journals, right? The software citation work has tried to do this as well. And I think this is originally, I guess, why I created Wispy was thinking that there was work under Force 11 that was trying to support publications and see where publications should go. There was work under RDA, the research data lines, trying to look at where data should go, and there wasn't a equivalent for software. And so WSB was an initial attempt to do that, and I think Reset is a better attempt to do that now. So looking at the whole picture of this conversation, what's amazing talking to you is A, the clarity of thought, B, you talk in full sentences, which is really hard because I keep seeing these asterisks and numbers for citations that I have to go look up in the middle of the sentence, which makes it difficult. And I'm guessing it may be that way for some of the guests. And so what I'm curious about, we've talked about your funders forum for Risa, which is great. So if people are funding, they could probably go join that. I know there's a community call because I was on it yesterday. And thank you so much for holding that space, which is really exciting. I want to know how different sorts of listeners, whether they're research software engineers, software engineers, engineers, or at companies or at academies can get involved with Risa. Can you share that briefly? I would say that in terms of Risa, we're just starting this. The community call that you were on was our first community call. We will be doing these monthly there on the Risa website. There's an events page and you can see the next one is scheduled. I think it's August 15th, I believe, at something like noon central, if I remember right, although I'm not completely sure that it's worth checking. And the question that happens there actually is we're trying to use that as a mechanism to start bringing people together in addition to the task forces where we have a particular thing that we want to do and then we you know we go out and find people interested in that. The community call is really intended to bring people together for more general discussions, potentially to think about what people do want to do together that could spin off into a new task force, for example. And so the people there could be, or really anybody that's interested in research software, no matter where they're from. I will say that for people who might consider themselves research software engineers, people who are familiar with research and comfortable in a research environment and working there, and also feel like they have good software engineering skills, 
They probably should be looking at, if they're in the U.S., the U.S. RSE, the U.S. Research Software Engineering Association. If they're in the, the U.K., the Society of Research Software Engineering, and there are similar activities in other countries as well. And so, again, it, it depends on what somebody's focus is. If they're interested in software general, research is great. If they're interested in the kind of the career paths along software engineering, then one of the RSE associations would probably be equally good as a place to talk. I like to imagine all of our listeners being these brilliant, talented people who have no priorities or nothing on their plate, but know what they're kind of interested in and have all the time to join in all the things we mentioned. So I'm sure that's you, everyone who's listening. I mean, if so, great. Spend 20 hours of your week on these things. Yeah, Nathan, so maybe I'll jump in for a second and say that this is the reason that funding becomes important here. And it's a little bit maybe different than funding in industry is that primarily people that are at national labs and the universities and who make up probably 90% of the people in USRSE where the other 10% are in industry. But they're people that have, I mean, I guess in some ways it's not so different than industry, but they're people that have particular things that they're doing with their time now. And I think it's harder for them to be able to change that than it is for people in industry. Because uh, for somebody that's a faculty member, 75% of their time in theory is teaching and 25% is research and service or something. I'm probably getting these numbers wrong and faculty will be unhappy with my guesses. But there are commitments that they have for particular things. And anything that they want to do that's outside of that commitment, they really need to get funding for. And people at National Labs are the same way, where all of their time has to be funded by some chargeable activity. Whereas in the industry, some industry is like that. Some industry has more kind of internal funding that gets used that's a little bit more flexible. Totally. Thank you for that clarification. Maybe I just picked up too many Britishisms when I lived there and I joke about things that are incredibly serious. So thank you for saying, yes, that's actually an issue. Dan, you have such a multifaceted approach to the work that you do that it's hard for me to say which facet people should go to next when they want to hear about your work or get involved. Do you have a single place where people can follow you on the web? I'd like to be able to say the longer where I write occasionally, but my writing seems to be much more occasional than it should be. So probably not there. So I guess maybe Twitter would be the most kind of general place. Excellent. And you can reach Daniel at Daniel S. Katz with a Z or Z, depending on where you're from, on Twitter. Daniel, this has been really, really excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk today. I really appreciated this discussion, but it's not over yet. Adroit listeners will know that we now have Spotlight. Spotlight's the part of the show where we talk about projects, people, or things that are not us which are useful and we think should just have more light put on them. So with that in mind, Ben Nichols, what is your random spotlight today? My random spotlight for today is callback to my first few spotlights were like, you know, open source tools for astronomy. And I was thinking, what's my favorite piece of research software? And I thought, actually, no, my favorite piece of research work is an open standard called FITS, which is basically an imaging standard for multidimensional image arrays that is used in astronomy a lot. And I'm not sure who supports it, but I'm very glad it exists because it enables you to create absolutely amazing images of the sky and record any amount of data that you want on a per pixel level. So FITS is my call out. Thank you so much. Amanda? Yeah, I'll stick with my usual pattern of recommended reading. And in this case, it's a paper that was presented at ICSE 2022, the International Conference on Software Engineering. And the title of the paper is, Did You Miss My Comment or What? Understanding Toxicity and Open Source Discussions. And the authors, Miller Cohen, Clug Vasilescu, and Katzner had a brilliant discussion about 
why is it so hard to find when people are being mean jerks or otherwise not pleasant in open source? And so they went through a lot of repositories and discussion boards to kind of try to see like when an issue appears, how do people react and can you detect that? And they found that it's actually, I mean, we already know content moderation is hard. Automated content moderation is hard. Automated content moderation, specifically when you're dealing with things in open source are even more challenging. So as we think about like community methods and how to help detect when problems are happening, I really love this paper because I think it showed that the problems of finding things with automated methods in open source is more complex than even general conversations, as opposed to here's a lovely, tidy answer that fits that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Ben, unlike you, I do not remember my first spotlight. I've hosted 123 of these podcasts as of current notes online. So that's just this podcast. Mine today, thank you, Amanda, for the trigger, is how many genera of Stercoraridae are there? This is a paper I read over the weekend when I couldn't sleep, and it is the most fun paper I've read in a while. I had to stop reading and just go look up the guy who wrote it, who has no information online because he is a random Brazilian ornithologist. So if you're interested in looking at the taxonomic implications of cladistics on current species of skua, I would highly suggest this paper. Unfortunately, the American Ornithological Society turned down the proposal to recategorize skuas in 2017 because they said DNA testing will be relevant and we haven't really done that yet, even though this cladistic paper is really interesting and they are just totally wrong to do so. Go check out this paper. It's amazing. Thank you. Daniel, what's your spotlight today? Yeah, just really quickly, I was going to kind of say two things. One is that the FIT standard, it's interesting because it's actually in some ways implemented via software as opposed to being implemented in a written way. And it's really software that people look at to see if their FIT's compliant or not, as opposed to a written standard. For Amanda's comment, I was actually also going to say that there's really interesting work on the effects of this toxicity and how it reduces the diversity of the communities where it happens. Yeah, so it's a really great subject. So mine was a Radical Candor, the book by Kim Scott, which is really aimed at management, and maybe somebody else has already talked about this in a previous spotlight, but it's aimed at this kind of idea of how do you act quickly and honestly, but in a way that is supportive to people. And it's focused on management, like line management, but there's a lot of it that really works in terms of project management as well. And so as I'm not a line manager, I did take a number of lessons from this that I'm trying to apply to projects that I work in. Having been managed as a line cook, that sounds really interesting. Daniel, this was really great. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm really just glad for the time that you shared and for the wisdom you have glittered and thrown before us. Listeners, if you like this episode, if you have any questions or follow-up, please feel free to send emails to podcast at sustainoss.org or reach out on Twitter at sustainoss. You could also, again, ping Daniel S. Katz in there as well if you're interested. If you really like this podcast, you could always like us on Apple or Spotify. Those things actually do help our numbers. And it's very important that we get in front of random people who haven't already heard about this podcast, unlike you, who are excellent. If you have any suggestions for future guests, again, podcast at sustainoss.org. Or if you just want to open up more conversation with other people who may be interested in this, you can go to discourse at sustainoss.org to talk about things on our forum. We, of course, also have a conference, which we're trying to organize for next year, 2023. So keep in mind for that, if you're interested and hold open space between generally January and July next year. If we don't end up using it, you can always go hike the Appalachian Trail. Daniel, thank you so much again and take care.